Often I hear people talking about a security culture, we need to build a security culture. Well, newsflash, every organization has a security culture, whether you're actively building it or not, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's working for you or against you, you have a cybersecurity culture. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Well, hello. Welcome back to the Mindful Business Security Show. I'm your host, Accidental CISO. We have yet another great show for you this month that is absolutely jam-packed with information to help you protect your business. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please share this episode with anyone in your network that you would think would benefit from the conversation and answers to our caller's questions. My guest host today is an expert on the human side of cybersecurity. She's passionate about advancing cybersecurity awareness training, behavior, and culture in organizations. A published author, you can find her books, Confident Cybersecurity and Cybersecurity ABCs, wherever books are sold. She's an accomplished presenter and has traveled the world to keynote conferences for NATO, the World Government Summit, and RSA, to name just a few. She's a co-founder of the cybersecurity firm Cygenta and serves on numerous industry boards. When she isn't working, she loves to take classes about everything from horseback riding to circus skills. I'm so glad you agreed to guest host with me today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jessica Barker. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm looking forward to this topic. I always love talking about awareness, as you said, you know, something I'm really passionate about. So very excited for the conversation today. I love hearing about other people's hobbies and things that they do outside of work. What sort of things do you learn in a circus skills class? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's um the circus skill stuff was was pretty fun. I actually first did it. I was lucky enough when I was a kid to have a day doing circus skills, and I really um enjoyed it. So my mom and dad got me a set of stilts and some other things that I um, had some fun with as a kid, and then you know didn't do it again for like twenty years. And then I this actually kind of goes back to when I was doing my PhD. I was stressed out and I wasn't being as productive as I wanted to be. And I was kind of complaining to my brother and he asked me a question he knew the answer to, which was like, what hobbies have you got going on at the minute, Jess? And I had none. And he was like, I think you need a hobby. I think that might help. So I really took that advice to heart and I started different things and trying different things, singing to ballroom dancing to playing the guitar um, to fencing. And then, uh, you know, years down the line, I thought, oh, I'll have a go at some circus skills. So I learned to have a go at the trapeze, uh, Diablo, juggling, which I was the worst at. I'm a terrible, terrible juggler. Um, and uh, a bit of tightrope walking, everything you can kind of imagine. And, you know, Cirque du Soleil are not going to come knocking at my door anytime soon. <laughs> I was not a necessarily a natural. But I do think particularly in our field where we're often busy and, you know, um, it's it can be a demanding field to work in. And a lot of us work in this field because we love it. So that means we generally then work more. Um, I think it's really healthy to have other hobbies and interests and uh, ways of just taking our minds off work. That is amazing. It sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I would I would recommend it. I think there's something to be said about 
like gently pushing yourself out of your comfort zone as well. Not to such extent where it like stresses you out more, but that kind of healthy growth and challenging yourself. And I was amazed how scary I found it actually at the trapeze because I didn't think of myself as being scared of heights. But when you've got to kind of just take a leap, <laughs> I can still remember the feeling. <laughs> wow. So when you take classes like this that are just so drastically different than what you do professionally, uh, is there anything that you feel like that you've been able to bring from those classes that make you better at what you do professionally? Yeah, 100%. I think the big thing for me is confidence. I um, I wouldn't describe myself as a naturally confident person, even though I speak to audiences sometimes of like thousands of people and, you know, national, international news and stuff like that. Um, confidence has been something I've had to work on throughout my life. And I think when we when we take classes in different things, when we challenge ourselves, I think it helps really develop and maintain that growth mindset of actually I can learn new things and I can challenge myself and I can do things that are scary and be okay afterwards and actually maybe get a bit better at them. I, I hadn't thought of the, the confidence angle on something like that. I, I wasn't sure where you were you're even going to go with what what you could learn and what you could draw because it just seems so different that I I, I had no idea. That is, uh, that's really fantastic. And our listeners here on the show aren't information security practitioners. Uh, you know, this show is for business owners, business leaders, so that we have a working definition for the conversations on this episode. How do you like to define what we mean when we say the human side of cybersecurity? I think when people hear the term cybersecurity, it sounds so deeply, purely technical. And of course, it, it is deeply technical. There is absolutely that huge element to it, but there's also a very strong people element. And the way I like to describe it is if we think about technology and kind of the life cycle of technology or even information, people are involved at every stage. Obviously, it is people who think up new tech, who develop and design new technology. It is people who use it, who abuse it, and um, it is people who feel the impact, whether that is positive or negative. And so when we think about cybersecurity, for me, that's very much about where people and technology are meeting. We are not trying to practice and develop cybersecurity for the sake of the technology itself. We're doing that to ultimately protect people, whether it's on an individual family level, whether it's at the business level, whether it's about communities and countries, ultimately it all comes down to people. And much of my work is about helping people understand how they can practice more secure behaviours, what cybersecurity really means to them, and where there is that that human element. It's definitely a different way to, to think about it. I've, I've seen the same thing. You know, business leaders tend to see cybersecurity as primarily that uh, technical field, a technical problem set, when it really isn't. You know, in my consulting and my life as a chief information security officer, much of what I'm doing is people and, and process and system related looking at the organization as a system. And, you know, yes, you know, there is a technical component to it, but much of the, the time has been spent on non-technical technical things there. So 
Why is the human side of cybersecurity so important? It's really so important because, as you said, you know, most, if not all, cyber attacks involve people in one way or another, whether that is the people who are carrying out the attack, who are behind the attack. And we can think then about the different groups, you know, whether it's the financially motivated cyber criminals, whether it is hacktivists who might be trying to make a political or ideological point, whether it is uh, young people, usually, you know, who are trying to make a point or like, you know, flex their ego. There's a lot of a human element into the motivation and then the methods of the attack groups or the threat groups. And then, of course, we get to people who are just trying to do their job, just trying to get through their day, and maybe for one reason or another can get caught up in a cyber incident. I think because in the cybersecurity industry, we have focused on technology for so long, to some extent, we've left people more vulnerable. So people are now often the way in for cyber criminals via social engineering, via phishing emails and texts and phishing phone calls. And so most hacks that hit the headlines usually involve social engineering, misconfigured technology, or compromised passwords and accounts. And all of those center very much on the human element and human behavior. Computers do exactly what you tell them, for better or for worse, but they don't care about being helpful. And people do. People want to be helpful. And well-meaning employees, team members, whatever, that, you know, decide for whatever reason to to do something with good intentions can end up making problems. And it makes them unpredictable when somebody is trying to manipulate them in some way. And, you know, they use that helpful nature uh, against the teams for sure. Uh, if there was, if there was one thing that you wish every small business owner knew about cybersecurity, what would that one thing be? I'm going to stretch the rules and I'm going to give a two-parter because they so go hand in hand. <laughs> because number one, I really want to dispel the myth that cyber attacks only impact big companies who are targeted. There is often, and I hear this all the time in awareness raising, people saying, well, why would cyber criminals target me or my company? And what we find is that all sorts of different organizations, small companies, public sector, individuals can get caught up in cyber attacks. And it's not necessarily because you've been targeted. Most victims of cyber attacks aren't targeted. Now, the reason that I make it a two-parter is that that can leave people understandably feeling a little bit scared. And that's the last thing that I want. I don't want people to feel like they need to despair because there is a sense of inevitability. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, it's important to also understand that there are lots of quite simple things you can do that will mitigate the threat to a huge degree. And so, yes, you can be vulnerable, but you can also do a lot to stay protected and stay secure. And in many ways, that's easier for a small business because I, I run a small business myself and I know we can move a lot quicker than some of the really large clients we work with. So that's an absolute benefit. You don't have to spend a great deal of money and you can move quicker and be very secure. It's actually one of the things that I 
love about working with small businesses specifically is sort of the, the creative challenge they're working with that. But large organizations, they have money typically, but they don't have a lot of flexibility. And small businesses have the exact opposite problem. They have near infinite flexibility, but they don't necessarily have budget. And you have to be really careful or really creative, I should say, about how you approach these things. And you can come up with just really great solutions for small businesses. And there have been, you know, a, a lot of work done for I see in sort of the, the market for awareness training as well, because, you know, vendors have started to roll out learning management systems and video content, but it's not just the dry lecture style stuff anymore. You know, we're getting, you know, professionally produced, professional actors, lit, you know, sound engineering, like everything for this content. And, and it's funny. Yes. Like they've made it relatable. They've made it under, understandable. And there's multiple vendors out there that now that are doing this. So, you know, being able to provide awareness training for a team, it's anymore, at least it's, it's not even that, you know, everybody rolls their eyes. Oh, it's time for the awareness training again. You know, people might actually in some ways look forward to it, you know, because it's, you know, Saturday Night Live skit sort of style, funny things where they put people in real life situations. So it, I love where the industry has has come with that. Um, do you have any any favorites uh, for, you know, some of the, the content that you've seen out there for small businesses that they might be interested in? Yeah, I think you, you hit on such a good point. You know, it used to amaze me when I first started working in awareness raising and I would look around at a lot of the content and think, how have we managed to make a subject that is so interesting and impacts people's lives and is so funny? Like there are so often funny scenarios of cybersecurity. How have we managed to make it so dry and boring? Um, and I'm so happy to see over the last few years that actually there's been this sea change. We're seeing so much progression in cybersecurity. And I, I held a focus group just last week as part of a culture assessment with a client of ours. And they were saying exactly that. They loved their awareness raising so much that they're always excited for the next video and the next fun thing that's going to come out. And I think you know, even just sometimes bringing the stories to life. These are stories that impact people's lives, people's everyday lives. And storytelling is so powerful that in a small business, even just telling some of those stories and really taking it away from the technology and the jargon and focusing instead on the impact can really get through and really stick in people's minds. And one of the things that I saw as, we, as I was putting together your your intro was the impact of culture and, and sort of your passion about culture there too. Can you talk a little bit about the importance there of culture specific to awareness training and, and in cybersecurity? Yeah, absolutely. The way I see it, the cybersecurity culture of your organization is really the foundation of your cybersecurity maturity and your posture because it impacts everything from the extent to which people will recognize an incident and more importantly report it. It impacts whether different teams will want to work with the security team or not. It impacts whether um, you know technical controls will be configured correctly. It impacts everything. And often I hear people talking about a security culture. We need to build a security culture. 
Well, newsflash, every organization has a security culture, whether you're actively building it or not, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's working for you or against you, you have a cybersecurity culture. It just might not be the kind of one that you want. So really understanding, for me, it comes down to four areas, the values of the organization and the people in the organization around security, the perceptions people have about what cybersecurity means, what it means to them, the role of the security team, their levels of responsibility, the roles of senior executives, and the extent to which they're going to be punished uh, if there is an, an incident, if they, for example, click on a link in a phishing email. So values, perceptions, levels of awareness, and behavior, the actual behavior people are practicing, whether they are encouraged to break the security rules or maintain them, you know, what the norms of the organization are. These are all things that have a huge impact on your actual level of cybersecurity. Very good. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. So I think that's that's just great information for small business leaders that listen to this show to to understand is how critical security really is to the business and how how just fundamentally ingrained it needs to be in the organization and the culture in order to help the organization, you know, protect themselves and still be able to, to do business and, and meet their customers' needs at the same time. Yeah. And one thing I often find is, is with security culture, people will kind of think we need to scare people into security, you know, and we need to make them um, really scared about the threat to, to make them behave securely. And it's something that, that clients would often come to me with and still sometimes do. We need to scare people into security. And about 10 years ago, I just started to get so frustrated with this approach that I really started to dig into the psychology of fear and to think about how decades of research in the psychology of fear can inform how we talk about cybersecurity. Because of course we have to talk about the threat, but if we are really heavy on the threat and if we scare people and if we're really negative and doom and gloom, that does not appeal to people psychologically. And usually that's at odds with the organizational culture. Usually organizational cultures are more positive than that. So actually it's, it's about the worst thing you can do. You know, we have to talk about the threat, but when you're building a cybersecurity culture, it's so much more important to think about how you can empower people, how you can give them that sense of self-efficacy, of control over um, their cybersecurity behaviors, and how you can build a culture that encourages them to raise their hand if they've got a question or a concern, or if they're worried they've been involved in an incident. And a culture of fear really just undermines all of that. I imagine it can work very effectively in the short term, but it's like the returns on that are going to diminish very quickly. Yeah, this is the thing with fear is if you want a quick behavioral response, then fear is really effective, which is why, unfortunately, it works so well for cyber criminals in social engineering. Because as humans, if we're scared, we will um, have a kind of knee-jerk response to that. We'll react, we'll, quick, we'll click that link or download that attachment because our brains will be kind of clouded by that fear. But if you want a long-term behavioral change and if you want to build up relationships with people, then fear just does not work. So we have some callers on hold here with questions on this topic. Are you ready to go to the phones and take some calls? 
Sounds great. Awesome. Let's go. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast. And sign up to be a caller on a future episode. Our first caller on the phones today is Alexa from Florida. Alexa, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for being here. How can we help you today? So I'm currently advising a startup that's specializing in legal compliance services. And while they're very small and pretty niche, they're basically the intermediary between financial institutions and vehicle manufacturers. So despite being a small business and intending to stay that way, they do handle a lot of confidential and sensitive information for their customers. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what some of the non-negotiable expenses are when it comes to security awareness and training, um, especially you know with a very small budget. Great question, Alexa. Thanks so much for asking us that. I think, um, firstly, actually, the first part of my answer is not going to relate to training and awareness, which might sound strange, but I would say first up is to reduce the burden on people as much as possible. So good email filtering to limit the amount of phishing emails that are getting through to people and a reporter fish mechanism, whether that's like a button in the email client or just an email address. So that if people do get something that they are questioning, they know what to do with it and that it's a good idea to report it. Then I would say, you know, obviously it's good to have those technology kind of foundations in place. But of course, as we know, tech can only do so much. So then, as your question implies, it comes back to security culture and awareness raising. And I would say the kind of non negotiables, first up, you know, particularly thinking about your organization is of course looking at your compliance. What do you need to be compliant with and what do your clients particularly expect you to have in place? So I would do a, a kind of project to make sure that that was all covered and that that was all set up and clients were going to be happy with that. I think then some general awareness raising and how you approach this can vary. You know, there's the traditional uh, once a year kind of mandatory training that everybody clicks through and nobody pays attention to. But what you really want is to kind of get some bang for your buck. So it is possible to spend a fortune on ineffective training or to spend little on something that will really stick. What you want is something that will convey the key messages that will be aligned with your culture and that will leave people knowing what's expected of them and what they can do. So there's lots of companies out there. My company, Sygenta, is one of them making bite-sized videos, making really engaging and accessible awareness-raising resources that often are much better in a kind of busy startup culture. You can think about maybe some live awareness-raising. Uh, you could get in a social engineer or an ethical hacker you know, they can tell some stories from the front line. And I promise you, people will still be talking about those for years to come. Um, you can do things in-house if you don't have any budget. You can look at cybersecurity issues that are hitting the headlines 
and think about how you can give people a heads up of those. I saw something on social media recently. It was very cool. It was just like a whiteboard in an office lobby. And every week the security team wrote on there some of the biggest threats they were seeing at the minute, some of the stats in-house. They drew like little, you know, cool little cartoons and things. And that personal touch really resonated with people. They weren't spending money. Um, it was nothing fancy, but it was getting people's attention. Um, you can add cybersecurity as a standing item, for example, to town halls. It's just something that you regularly come back to. And of course, there's lots of free resources out there. Um, this is why I share weekly cybersecurity videos on YouTube that are a free resource for small businesses, for anyone out there who wants to use them to help raise awareness. So you can do lots of things without having to spend money. It's just about being creative and putting yourself in the shoes of the people that you're serving and trying to communicate with what's going to resonate with them. Yeah, excellent points. The the free stuff is is huge, especially if you're trying to roll out a training program mid-year. If you're in an org that's just large enough to have budgets and you haven't set aside budget this year for it um, and you need to do something. You know, I, I see this happen a lot with folks that want to do a SOC 2 and they've spent all their budget on the auditors and all of that stuff. And they realize like, oh, we need awareness training as part of this. Jess mentioned like there's great content on YouTube that if you know, you know, kind of outline the list of topics that you need to cover, you can find really engaging videos and stuff on YouTube that's short that you can email out once a month to folks, you know, just, you know, sort of a, it doesn't even have to be a full like newsletter. You don't have to take the time to write a formal newsletter, even to email out internally, but just a, you know, hey, you know, this, this topic is, uh, you know, top of mind. Maybe if somebody in the company had asked you a question that was related, you know, hey, you know, Bob asked me this question the other day and here's this video. I thought everybody might be really interested on this topic or something. You can roll this stuff out and send out these, you know, videos. Or if you've got, uh, uh, you know, lightning talks or something too that you can put together just quick 10, 15 minute things that, you know, people can come to during lunch breaks and that kind of stuff. And if you just take attendance, you know, like if you are doing SOC 2 where you need to prove that you're doing it, save the emails, take attendance, that kind of stuff. It doesn't have to be super formal and it doesn't have to be super, super expensive either. And then once you get this established and you decide you want to take it to the next level, like then you can start looking at buying video content from the, these providers who have, you know, this professionally produced stuff that you can pick and choose from and and all of that. So yeah, creativity is gonna is gonna win here with with security training. Don't have to spend a ton of money to be effective, thankfully. Thank you. These are a lot of really great pointers I'm gonna take back. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Alexa. Yes, thank you for calling in. I'm glad we could help today. Thank you so much. Our next caller here today on the show is Carmen from Memphis. Hello, Carmen. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? We're doing great. How can we help you today? So I currently work for a startup company with approximately 35 employees, but we have a lot of contractors, maybe around 100. And we've recently received our SOC 2 Type 2 report. So yay. I manage the cybersecurity program, but I rely heavily on outsourcing for a lot of it, including the compliance training and security awareness. We have a third party that creates, maintains it, and tracks everything so that we can provide the evidence to our auditors. The situation that we've run into is that there is a group of 
about 50 or so contractors who access and view some customer record for data analysis. And that triggers some specific training that they have to take. However, the executive that manages this group of contractors doesn't believe that the cost of completing the training is worth the cost that she's basically paying these contractors to complete the training. And she's looking at hourly costs, not the actual cost of the training. We're already paying for that. So how would I reconcile supporting these business needs, um, helping to support that cost control, but at the same time, maintaining compliance with our SOC 2? Great question, Carmen. And first up, I can imagine how busy you are uh, running that entire program yourself. So <laughs> you just want to take a moment to acknowledge that. And, um, and stakeholder management, right, is a huge part of that and often causes some of the challenges. Um, my thoughts on this were really, unless this startup really values compliance and you think the executive values compliance, I wouldn't lead with that. I wouldn't be thinking so much about compliance. I would be communicating how the training can protect the company and enable everyone, including the contractors, to do what they're being paid for. So when I'm trying to get executive sponsorship or I'm supporting a client getting executive sponsorship, I really think about the executive's objectives and the language they speak in and what really resonates for them. So then I would be, for example, if it's finances, if it comes down to the bottom line, then I would be trying to reflect how the business is going to get a return on investment for the contractor's hourly rate. And I would be thinking about incidents that I can share with this executive and say, hey, we don't want to be in this position. For example, the ransomware attack on Baltimore public schools which they have described as catastrophic. It's still being reported on now, um, three years after it happened, and it cost Baltimore $9.6 million and a whole lot of time in terms of investigation, recovery, setting up new systems. And that was caused by a contractor, unfortunately a security contractor, who accidentally opened a malicious attachment in a phishing email. So actually training everybody who accesses the systems, everybody who accesses the information in cybersecurity can pay off dividends, not just financially, but in terms of time, in terms of the running of a business. And I think that's the angle I would be trying to, to move with when I was communicating with this executive. Like, yep, it's going to take, say, an hour of their time, but it may save this company countless hours and countless financial resources if it prevents us having an incident. Thank you. That is great insight. And are these trainings that are being triggered, are they being triggered because of SOC 2 or are they being triggered because of like some sort of regulatory or legal requirement? Um, it's being triggered because of a little bit of both, but because it's customer data is and the kind of the privacy behind it is what's really the big trigger for it. So you'll have contractual obligations that you're up, upholding contracts that they have, the company has with customers says we're going to train people on that. So, so not doing that does put the company at risk there from a not just a breach situation, but a, a lawsuit situation uh, as well. So uh, instead of focusing on, on the, the negatives, you know, that was one of the things that we were talking about that Jess and I were talking about early on in the early part of the podcast, 
focusing on negative is only really effective for a little while. Um, but if we can focus on enabling, you, you may have better luck. And one of the things that I've always liked to try to do as a CISO is try to work with other folks to like solve other pain points and security ends up being a byproduct of that. So if there's other training that they already have to do, you know, a big part of security is, is process quality in a way. So the training that they have to go through to kind of mistake proof things, make sure that people know what they're doing and they're not making mistakes is rework is expensive. And if your people aren't trained, and they have to do rework, like that starts becoming much more expensive than just an hour of training to make sure they know how to do things right in the first place. So if they already have training in general for just their specific role and what they're supposed to do, if this content can somehow be added into that so that it doesn't become a freestanding training that maybe has to fill an entire hour long session or something like that, you, you might do well there. And I guess the other other thing I was curious is that the contractors, are they are they direct contractors or are they through another firm? They're direct. I was hoping you might say it's through another firm because if it was another firm, you might be able to push that back on the other firm to provide training for their people. But if they're if they're direct, you obviously won't have that that outlet. So Could I just also ask, just occurred to me, Carmen, has the executive themselves taken the training and did they have any feedback on that? Um, yes, she has taken the training. She didn't really give me any feedback, but she has taken it. And I believe she's open to, we're, we're trying to solve this problem together. It, it truly is a situation where I'm trying to support her. She wants, she, she wants to be compliant. She's struggling, I believe, as well with how do we pay <laughs> this big group of people being a small company solely for this particular requirement. Um, so we're trying to work together to find the best solution. Another thing that occurs to me is, can the training be broken down into smaller chunks? Um, yeah, rather than it being one hit and one like take out of time and money, whether it actually all has to be done in one go. I probably could. Yeah, five minutes a month is a lot easier to do than you know, an hour all at once annually. That's definitely an idea that I hadn't thought of. I thought about maybe making my own that was maybe shorter, more concise, directly related to what they're doing. So I, that's why I thought this is a perfect opportunity to call in and, and get some other ideas that I can bounce off somebody. Yeah, bite-sized training, and particularly if it can be super relevant. A, that, you know, that takes the box of taking up the least amount of time for the most impact. And it is also going to actually probably resonate with the individuals taking the training themselves because it's going to be super relevant to what they're doing and not take up too much of their time. So if that's an option, I would I would definitely be exploring that. Thank you so much. These were great ideas. I'm going to take them all back um, so that we can discuss it and figure out what works best for us. All the best with it, Carmen. Thank you so much. Thank you. So glad we could help you. Thank you, Carmen. Our last caller on the show today is Michael from Washington. Michael, welcome to the show. How can we help you? Oh, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Um, I guess my question revolves more around working with uh, people in an organization who often don't uh, have a full appreciation for security. Uh, what sort of you know trainings or approaches do you take for the person who's just generally disinterested? Uh, I 
come from a background of working in healthcare, and uh, you know, a lot of times you'd see maybe the nurse who was all about getting medications to patients on time, but couldn't care less about whether she clicked on the latest email chain or or whatever else. And so, you know, how do you, how do you work with the? I don't want to say the recalcitrant, but how do you work with <laughs> the folks who just don't really see the value of uh, a better security posture or awareness? Thanks for the question, Michael. This is an issue that comes up all the time and has come up, you know, repeatedly as a challenge in clients that I have worked with over the years. When I'm creating and delivering awareness raising, I like to use what I call my engagement equation, which is basically putting myself in the shoes of the people that I'm communicating with. And I really want to make sure that all of my content, all of my communications answer both why and why me. So why is this important and why specifically should I care about this? So it's about tapping into the values and the priorities of whoever you're communicating with. So in healthcare, this isn't about security. This is about patient safety and patient care. And I would be thinking, what is the culture that we have here? Why do people do the job that they're doing here? What do they care about? And I would probably then be framing this in terms of um, caring for people, in terms of making sure that the people you serve are protected and that their information is protected in a way that you would want your information protected if it were yours. If the culture is a positive one, and I often find that it is in healthcare, then I would be trying to make sure my communications were empowering and engaging rather than kind of heavy on the fear or the uncertainty and the doubt. So really thinking about the current that your organization kind of moves with and how can you how can you tie security to that so that it's not a separate standalone issue, but it's really part of the core values of the organization. That kind of what I hear and there's a lot of empathy. I think that's a, a really kind of a neat approach to it. When in terms of kind of uh, approaching them kind of from like a patient safety and, and things like that, what do you see, and, and maybe this is broader than healthcare, but what do you see as being some of the biggest barriers to the security unaware or the security unconcerned with uh, adapting a better security posture or awareness? I think there's multiple barriers. I think, you know, one thing is people are busy. And, you know, particularly in a healthcare environment, um, people are often working in a, a very demanding uh, capacity. And so I think empathy, you touched on that, um, that is so crucial. People will often feel like they have so much to do and now security is being added on top of it. And it can feel like it's a demand being made of them. So helping to kind of empower them with security, helping them to understand how security is central to the mission of the organization and really listening to them. Sometimes when we are thinking about behaviors and security, we'll focus very much on how can I change that individual's behaviors. But sometimes we actually have to change the policy or the controls or the tools. 
So actively listening to people and understanding if they're practicing workarounds all the time when it comes to security, is it because they're unaware? Is it because they're unwilling? Or is it actually because there is too much friction there? And maybe there's something that can be done to reduce that. But sometimes even just listening to people and saying, hey, you know, I understand the frustrations. But the reason we do this from a security point of view is X, Y, Z, and the outcome of that means that people are safer, more secure, more protected. It, connecting with them on that human level can pay dividends. I often find people don't um, practice insecure behaviors because they want to, you know, they don't want to be a problem. Sometimes there's that few percentage, but generally people want to do a good job and they don't want to cause a security incident. So often there is a good reason, either lack of understanding or too much friction, or too much pressure, and it's all too demanding. And understanding those reasons why and trying to tackle them, that can be really beneficial. I'm sitting over here on mute, you know, just, just smiling and nodding and resisting the urge to just be like, yes, yes. I, I love this because that compassion for the people, um, be, recognizing what it is they're trying to do in their job day to day, like what their objectives are, like that's that's what they care about. In specifically, then in you know healthcare, a lot of people do it because this is their calling. You know, it's just like people going into teaching as if this is their their calling, and so you know framing things in a way that's going to resonate with them that way may also help. Uh, we talked a little bit in an episode recently about privacy. And one of the things that came up in the privacy episode is in organizations, security, a lot of times is about protecting the organization's data. But in the case of privacy and healthcare data, it's not the organization's data you're protecting. It's the patient's data. These people are called into this profession to help people and to take care of people. And this is just one more way that they can help their patients and take care of their patients to be good stewards of the information that they have access to in the course of treating that patient. So if you just frame it a little bit, you may get it to click in their head and realize like, oh yeah, this is just one more way that I can help earn the trust my patients as I'm you know, trying to, to, to serve them and their needs. Absolutely. And I love the idea too that uh... Sometimes there may be a root policy or or something of the business practices that's getting in the way, and and that to me seems like a great way to get some uh, employee buy-in, right? If 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 this policy is the perennial thorn under their skin, then getting that changed and improving security seems like a win-win for everyone. Hundred percent, Michael. And what I love about that approach is. Actually, even if you can't make the change, if you have the conversations, you listen to people, you go back and you feed that back to them and you say, you know, we took it on board, we really tried to make the change, but for these reasons we couldn't, you know, worst case scenario, or if you can go back and say, hey, your feedback really made a difference here, we made that change, and then people see a more positive side to security, and you're building those, those relationships. And then the next time something comes along, they may be more willing to go to security and say, hey, I've got this problem or I've seen this issue or I need some help. It really helps to just break down some of the barriers that are sometimes there. And build trust too. Yeah, exactly. So well said. Yeah, that's all for me. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. Great, great questions. Good conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. So, Jess, we've had 
three callers with excellent questions. And, um, you know, I, I think that the answers to those questions are going to be really, really relevant and useful to our audience. Do you have any, any thoughts or closing thoughts, things you want to kind of reiterate or, or anything based on the conversations and the questions we've had? Yeah, we had such great questions. And I think one thing that struck me from from all of them was that theme of empathy. And it's something I often talk about in cybersecurity, how we can particularly practice that compassionate empathy that is about putting ourselves in the shoes of the people we're communicating with and the people we're asking certain, you know, behaviors of and understanding how we can better support them and also how we can communicate in a way that shows that cybersecurity is is there for them, you know, and is there to help um, protect them, help them protect themselves, their families, their colleagues, their communities. And I think that's something we can all take forward um, and maybe maybe look at in how we're practicing cybersecurity in general. Excellent point. Excellent point. That uh, compassion and, and just understanding them and, and empathy is what's going to, I think, allow us insecurity to sort of change the perception of us as the department that's always telling people no and turn it into, you know, being the ones that folks look to for help to solve problems and get them to, to come to us early and, and that sort of thing to, to solve problems because we help them figure out how to, uh, how to enable them as we go through and figure out how to do what they want safely and efficiently and, and make their jobs easier instead of making their jobs harder. So I love it. So where can folks find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Jessica Barker. You can find me on LinkedIn, Jessica Barker. And, um, you know, pretty pretty much everywhere. Instagram, uh, website, sygenta.co.uk and drjessicabarker.com. There's lots of places, wherever's best for you. I have a YouTube channel where I share weekly cybersecurity videos. So wherever wherever you are, I'm trying to be. Perfect. I will include links uh, to those different sites in the show description so that folks can find you more easily. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Dr. Barker. This has been another fantastic episode, and I, I think folks are going to find it very, very uh, valuable. Before we go, I can't forget to thank our callers and our listeners. A huge thank you to each of our callers for bringing their questions to the show. And another huge thank you for each one of you listening right now. Uh, it means a lot to me that you've taken time to listen to this show. I am Accidental CISO, and until the next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Focivity. Tune in next time when we'll hear accidental CISO say, Things keep boiling down to the same themes in security about like just being mindful and being vigilant, training, training and training.